Number 356 has been announced, and we're certainly happy to use that later in the service this morning. How blessed we are to be able to come together, even as we are at this moment, in the midst of a world that seemingly is so clouded with uncertainty and questions and doubts and so many other things that have turned the lives of many people upside down compared to what it was only a very few short weeks ago. The title of the lesson this morning, as you can see on the wall behind me, will have to do with the very thing in which we currently are engaged, namely, the assembly. And as we do that, I thought it perhaps entirely right and proper to at least devote this particular time of the service to reflect for a few minutes upon the character of what it is we're doing. The assembly, of course, is so often referenced within the pages of the New Testament and as those references are put before us, we quickly realize that not only there, but even in the Old Testament as well, God has always looked rather intently and also looked rather demandingly upon the nature of the assemblies. In Psalm 89 verse 7, in the Old Testament, there of course we will powerfully remember that the nature of the assembly, to be looked upon with reverence, to be looked upon as that special and rather powerfully divine arrangement. As you and I close that slide, though, we all know that this present day, of course, has brought challenges and has brought governmental edicts and decisions and the choices of some to choose to not assemble or at least to meet in the way that we are this morning. Perhaps a few questions or at least a few moments of reflection upon the nature of the assembly. This next slide will basically be a reminder, and it's a somewhat unhappy one in many ways. But again, it's just a statement. The place and time in which we currently are, the number of things that have been changed or altered as a result of this virus that has now engulfed the globe in, in so many ways, I've just chosen to list a few of them. The number of individuals who are now, by choices of their business, you must work at home. And so those that can, that has been the wholesale decision and the choice. But the nature of working from home immediately has brought about the government has often asserted, and at least stated, restrictions on the number of individuals that can gather at a certain place at the same time. Not only that. You'll notice the impact on our economy is still ultimately to be fully appreciated, but it's going to be massive. The last thing about that particular element is this. So many things, considering the nature of sports. There's no sports now at any level. From peewee all the way to professionals, and the Olympics, as I understand it, have been postponed. All of that being said, given the amount and the character and the impact of sports and for all of that to be suddenly disbanded or suspended or seasons ended, it has often been led to that next matter. There are some who have used and approached the services of the church this same way. Would it be right or proper to say suspend the services of the church? Would that be prudent? Would it be wise? Would that be the thing that would be in the best interest of keeping with the things that the Bible has revealed? And as we know, many congregations have chosen some approach much like that. You'll notice there at the bottom, some have completely canceled their services. Others have chosen, and by their own emphasis, not to cancel, but you worship at home. That is to say, stay in your places of residence, 
Just like businesses are encouraging work at home, you worship at home. You don't need to come to the building. You don't need to assemble anywhere. You just stay at home and worship. Others have made use of technology such as computers, and therefore at the building perhaps there is a song leader, and there's a gentleman leading prayer, and there's a gentleman preaching, but yet each person is tuned in at their own house, own computer, live streaming the service. And of course that approach is again something used by no small number. All of that leads us maybe for a few moments to reflect on what does the Word of God have to say to offer us any guidance. It is not our desire to place our opinion in this. That's the furthest from our desire, the furthest from what we know would be right. God has given us His will, and if He has spoken and if He has stated matters touching the assemblies in such a way that we can understand what it is, of course, that's presented, then that ought to settle the issues concerning the assemblies. With that in mind, let's go to our next slide. So what does the Word of God have to say about the nature of the assemblies? As you know, our elders have chosen to continue the 1030 worship service on Sunday. But we have set aside, or at least chosen not to assemble on Sunday evenings, as well as Wednesday evenings, and furthermore, even for the Sunday morning Bible study at 930. But in the perspective of our elders, there's something different about the 1030 service. That is to say, it is not in the same category as those other three services of the week. There's something rather special about it and unique concerning its relation to the others. Let's begin our journey like what you'll see on the slide. From the Word of God, we appreciate that in Acts chapter 2, a marvelous beginning took place. It was the day the church began. It had not been in existence prior to that day. It has been in existence ever since that day. It was the day of Pentecost. And as, of course, the Holy Spirit came in baptismal measure upon those apostles that day, Peter and the others stood up in verse number 11 and began to preach the marvelous measure of the salvation offered through Jesus Christ. And you and I remember that day about 3,000 individuals were baptized into Christ. And verse 42, in a bit of a summary, says, "...they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship." in breaking of bread and prayers. You may notice mention was made of breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Mention was made of prayers. Mention was made of the character of fellowship, and it says they continued in this steadfastly. From that time forward, it was an important and rather vital part of that which was their understanding of what the God of heaven expected of them. For that reason, you'll notice on the slide, I would encourage you to note this. On what day of the week did the church begin? It was Sunday, what you and I would call the first day of the week. We know that because the day of Pentecost, God had specified in Leviticus 23.15 that it was to occur 50 days after the Sabbath, immediately following the Passover. Now, the Sabbath was always a Saturday. That was the meaning of it. So you count exactly seven weeks, that's 49 days, add one more. The church began on Sunday. As it began on the first day of the week, we have then the precious understanding that that day was the one that in the New Testament was going to occupy a place of seminal importance. No wonder you'll notice about the middle of that slide. 
that the first century saints, they met at other times besides Sundays. We know that from Jude verse 12. We know that from 2 Peter 2.13. We know it from Acts, 2, or Acts 5 verse 42. They met at other times as well. But there was something special, something unique, something divinely appointed about the first day of the week. Many of the verses that we'll consider from this point forward will help us appreciate the nature of what they perceived as that distinction and what the God of heaven has instilled, of course, concerning the same. But maybe right now it would be fair to notice. Put yourself for just a moment in the position of those first century saints who had some knowledge of Jewish considerations. All their life they'd met on Saturday. And God has specifically said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8. And yet suddenly now, Saturday was not the day of importance. Under this regime of Jesus Christ, it was the first day of the week. It was this day that was called the Lord's Day in Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. It was this day understood and recognized from the verses we're about to see. It was that day on which those first century saints, with approval of those divinely inspired men, to assemble and to worship. Notice it in Acts 20 verse 7, on the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. They didn't come together on, on the Sabbath. They didn't come together on Tuesday. It was on the first day of the week. And in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, it was on that same day of the week that they gave as they had been prospered. And again, Paul said, Not only have I given orders to you at Corinth, but I've given these orders to all the churches of Galatia. Everywhere he'd been, he preached the same message. On the first day of the week, you give as you've been prospered. Now, Paul was an inspired spokesman. In Galatians 1, verses 9 through 11, he said, I didn't learn it from any man. I received it by revelation. And inasmuch as he received it in that way, it's that information he shared with those congregations in the first century and certainly by the writing of the Bible has shared it with us today. Having already then seen the importance and significance, notice a few other things that we might say before we close that slide. We've learned then that those first century saints they were led to appreciate the nature of the assembly on the first day of the week. I just mentioned a moment ago that that assembly seemingly is rather different than the other ones. Jesus, did He not Himself say, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Now that's a commandment. He didn't say this is something you might think about doing. He didn't say this is something you might give some attention to. He said, Thou shalt do this. And therefore, when it comes to the matter touching the consideration of worship, we know it is incumbent upon us as the direct commandment of God to engage in the specifics of what He has revealed to us would constitute that worship. Look at these verses. And so in Acts 20, verses 7 and following. Now without reading the fullness of that chapter, could we at least make this observation? On this third missionary journey, Paul was somewhat anxious to arrive at Jerusalem. He wanted to be there for the time of the next celebration or observance because no doubt it would give him an opportunity to preach. And yet when he came to Troas, despite the fact he was in a hurry to get there, 
it says we tarried seven days. Paul, if you're in a hurry, why do you wait? Why are you waiting in Troas for a whole week? Why not go on to Jerusalem? Well, we learned pretty quickly that he wanted to meet with the brethren. Does that not suggest the brethren weren't meeting on any day until that seventh one? Apparently he arrived, you see, in Troas late on Sunday or early on Monday, and the brethren weren't going to meet again until the next first day of the week. And so I tarried seven days. Does that not indicate they looked upon those assemblies and meetings with a great deal of propriety and significance? Let's add to that another one. In Acts 24, 11, one more time here we observe that Paul made statement about the nature of worship and how that it was done at these particular places or locations, if you please. Maybe we've already looked at enough to prepare us as a foundation for the points to consider next. Because isn't it true that many passages speak about God's people as they assemble for the prospect and for the reality of worship. In James chapter 2, verse 2, if a man come into your assembly wearing a gold ring and you show preference to him, you have committed an error. You've committed a sin. You've shown respect to persons where God never does. Whether one is rich or poor, all are invited to come and worship. But did you notice in the course of that discussion, James made reference to the assembly. Brethren were assembling. We might add 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, the church in Corinth. Paul basically said to them, when you come together, as a reminder, this was something they were doing. And they were doing it, of course. The nature of coming together, that was something that was very pleasing unto God. Now, not everything they were doing when they came together was pleasing, as we'll see shortly. But the fact they were coming together was perfectly in line with what God expected of them. Maybe one final thing. If we've now at least appreciated that the assemblies are a part of what the New Testament has revealed, and a part of what it is that the people of God will do in service to Him, all that's left for us is to ask, what does the Bible say about those assemblies? What kind of character does God state concerning them? And that should help hopefully answer any questions we might have about the nature of, can we suspend them? Can we, in fact, stay at home and claim that that is sufficient worship? Let's see. First of all, what's the purpose of those assemblies? Why are we coming together? We might first notice it's not for social convenience. It is not a matter of social thrust or emphasis. In fact, in that very passage, may I turn your attention to 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning in verse number 21, it says, For in eating every one taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? There are things you do at your house like eating a common meal. That's not the purpose of the assemblies. Even Paul highlighted the purpose of this assembly is distinctly different. It is to offer worship to God. It is to direct our hearts and our attention to fulfill those acts of reverence that we wish to direct to Him in the element of worship. And that is the definition of worship, acts of reverence directed to God. No wonder in that connection... You'll notice then that Paul gave this order in verse number 34. 
Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That's something you can do there. You don't come here to do that and call it an act of worship. But note the next idea, or at least the next matter. So, when we come together, what should be parts of that worship? Well, prayer. Over and again in the New Testament, we have that description of brethren who were assembled for the purpose, among other things, of offering prayer to God. I would call your attention to 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I will that men everywhere lift up holy hands, offering prayer unto God. As that discussion takes place concerning the assembly, he says, this is what I want you to do. The men are the ones that need to lead these prayers. But not only that. You may notice in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, a collection, a monetary financial collection. We have already prayed together today, and we will, will excitement, look forward to contributing as God has prospered us, and we do that understanding that those funds will be used for the maintenance and the upbringing of the kingdom in this area. But you'll notice that was a part of those matters touching the consideration of worship. But that isn't all. Look at the next one. What about the consideration of the Word of God? Paul preached until midnight in that same Troas meeting of Acts chapter 20, and so here was a group of Christians that were assembled in that upper room, and Paul preached to them. And you'll notice that, of course, the proclamation of the gospel was a part, and a very powerful one, of certainly, in regard to their worship. It's no wonder we could list many other passages, and I've invited you to note these two. Paul told Timothy, who himself was a younger preacher, preach the Word, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. So when Timothy, in fact, appeared before that church at Ephesus, he didn't have any authority to preach on matters other than the Word of God. That was his focus, and that was the text. In Romans 10, 17, isn't that the source of our faith? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. But what about some more things that should be said about these assemblies? It involves singing that worship assembly. And might we notice in passing some of the things that the Bible highlights about that singing. Let's note two passages rather familiar to all of us. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That verse began by speaking to yourselves. Note the plural. This is a reference to a cappella congregational singing. It seems a stretch to me to think that I could be at home and fulfill that passage. Even if others are singing the same song, how is it that I am able to encourage, to exhort, to warn, to edify, and to move them forward in encouragement? He says there what we just noted, but then amplifies it like this in Colossians 3. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. What about the extent of mutual congregational teaching and admonishing in the format like we've just mentioned? How can you and I stay at home and with our family sing songs that mutually encourage someone who isn't there? Someone who's located perhaps a far place away. Well, it seems as if, again, Paul's emphasis, written long before there was 
any kind of circumstances like we face with this COVID-19 today. But the very nature of the description. Look at what else might be said. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20, as we reflect upon the nature of these assemblies, may I read that verse. When you come together therefore into one place... And that phrase, one place, is not in italics. It is not the translator's purview. That's a part of the original text. Paul spoke about the Corinthians. They were coming together in one place. They were not worshiping in their individual homes. Notice also this. A little bit further in the same book, chapter 14, verse number 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done into edifying. That's only two passages among a few others that we might notice. Paul used the phrase, they had come together. And he even said in one place. Doesn't that highlight pretty strongly? pretty amazingly, the nature of what was constituted in regard to those assemblies? Let's go even further. In chapter 14, verse 23, it says, "...if therefore the whole church be come together into one place." Now there we have two statements. One, the whole church was involved. Two, they had come together. And three, it was in one place. All of that's a very strong presentation, don't you suppose? And therefore, we look with strength upon the nature of what the circumstances were concerning that first century church. The church in Corinth, of course, was suffering mightily in terms of what the culture of that day had brought, and yet they were told the whole church should come together in one place. And in so doing, Paul never called into question the nature of the fact of what that gathering was in the sense of itself was an approved, uh, an approved thing. And so the next statement, maybe it's the passage that comes before you and I somewhat quickly. Those Hebrew Christians who were suffering as they were, you and I remember the historical setting of that book. There were Christians, and they had formerly in life been Hebrews. That is to say, they had known the law of Moses, and they had appreciated worship beneath that system. But then they obeyed the gospel. They learned about Jesus Christ. They learned about His church. And in that obedience, they then became Christians. But now, they were facing a rather tumultuous time. We were never persecuted when we were Jews. And now that we're Christians, suddenly we find ourselves under a very different circumstance. And others are looking with displeasure upon what we're standing for. And therefore, many were encouraged or even tempted to not come together to the assemblies. Now, it doesn't really make that much difference whether it was due to persecution they weren't coming or whether it was due to their own personal weakness they weren't coming. Either way, he said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some he has noticed. There were some who were forsaking those assemblies. That original word has behind it the idea of turning their back upon. They, in essence, had no longer had a desire to come, whether it again forced due to persecution or due to their own personal weakness or due to their own personal circumstances, whatever those may have been. And yet the Hebrew writer still said, don't do this. 
maybe it is in that connection we can close that slide like this. We've said many things about the assemblies with the hope of using the Word of God to at least guide our thinking. Now let's revisit some of the initial questions. The Word of God, does it give to the human family the prerogative and the authority to cancel the Sunday morning worship, to cancel the first day of the week worship services? We understand well that God has bequeathed to elders the delegated authority over local congregations, but we certainly understand from Titus 1 verses 8 through 10 that that authority is on matters of expediency. It is not, nor has it ever been, on matters touching what God has revealed. For example, there certainly is no one that would claim an eldership has the right to change in any way the plan of salvation. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of this world ever could be, there is never an instance in which baptism could be said to not be required as a part of worship. I'm sorry, as a part of the plan of salvation. It doesn't matter what circumstances. Water could get to be short supply. That wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter what other health matters could touch the characteristic of it that would not change the plan of salvation. As far as the acts of worship, it doesn't matter what society comes to appreciate, health issues or otherwise. The five acts of worship God has dictated, man can never take one away nor add anything to it. Well, what are we saying then as it comes to the matters of these assemblies? We've found a lot of verses that speak to the nature of those assemblies. Has there been any of them that has given to man the delegated opportunity to suspend them, to cancel them? No. There has been no verses anywhere along that line. Let's add another one to it. In light of those passages in 1 Corinthians, so would it be proper or right for individuals to stay at the house and worship? We've already learned today many businesses encourage their workers to work at home. Can we worship at home? No, we can't. We simply can't. That church in Corinth... They came together as the whole church in one place. You and I have long appreciated that there's only three ways the Bible authorizes. It's by direct commandment, by approved example, and by necessary inference. Do we have any one of them present that would offer us the possibility of canceling service? Not in the slightest. Do we have any one of those present that will offer to us the thought that God will allow us to redefine worship such that we can worship at the house? No. We certainly don't have any command for it. We certainly have no example of it. And it certainly isn't a necessary inference either. Because we have these First Corinthians passages that speak of a different mode, and that is approved. Maybe it is as we close that one, that could ask about the computers. So could we turn on our computer, and at 10.30 on Sunday, all of us just look at perhaps the Pippin Church of Christ website and watch a live stream of this worship, and would we say that's sufficient? That isn't sufficient because we're not all in the same place. We're not all in the same place. And the church is not together in the definition of how the New Testament presents it. It is, it, it is a bit interesting to notice that, of course, computers and technology... Those things hadn't been invented or developed by the time of the Bible, but what the Bible has revealed has within it principles that will satisfy any society 
in any civilization until the end of time. And for that reason, let's look at this one last slide. There are some who then might say, but doesn't God offer us the opportunity to consider exceptions to the commands He's given? Well, sure, there are exceptions to some of the Bible commands. But may we never forget it's exceptions He's got to give us. We can't come up with exceptions on our own and claim that they are satisfactory. For example, God has given us the exception concerning divorce and remarriage. It's got to be for the cause of fornication and no other. But that exception He gives us, Matthew 19, 9. Looking back to these passages then that we've noted earlier, it says, when you come together for worship. If a person is not able to come together due to providential illness, due to other circumstances in life, then that is no contradiction to these passages. God expects us to come together if we can come together. And if we can't, then we cannot, in fact, satisfy the nature of those who are not able to come. God has never expected the impossible. He's never demanded that of anybody. Therefore, when one considers sickness, for example, we notice those who are sick, there are certain things they need, like doctors, Luke 8, 43, and like prayers of brethren, James 5, 14. But for them, coming to the assembly is not the most pertinent thing. They need to get well first. God understands if someone cannot come to the services, then they're not able to come. But you and I realize that apart from exceptions that God gives us, we cannot assert our own. There are times when you hear statements about that, for instance, anytime there's a clear and present danger, that phrase doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. Who has the liberty of defining a clear and present danger? If God doesn't define it, we can never use that as an exception. May I say, I hope, as we've at least reflected upon the assemblies, we do so closing that slide like this. It is our intent. It is our loving and colossal hope that we, until the Lord comes, can declare the truth of His nature, the aspect of His worship. And we'll do that, of course, striving to follow only those things He has given us in His Word. The Sunday assemblies, the ones, for instance, in which you and I are currently participating, these are important. So much so, then, that we realize they are not the same in every regard, at least, to say a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning Bible study. Our elders have chosen to meet for those times for edification, encouragement, and they are exceedingly important. And when they are taking place, Hebrews 10.25 mandates we be present at them as well if we can. But if we can't, then again, that is no contradiction to what God demands. But it does bring us to say this, our elders have chosen not to currently at least for a while meet on that Sunday morning Bible study or Wednesday evening Bible study or even Sunday evening worship. But it is their understanding that God has not given them the liberty to set aside the Sunday morning worship for the reasons we've studied this morning. And it is their intent then to proceed onward, as Gary mentioned earlier today, under a plan similar to the one we're currently following. And if it be the great blessing and will of God, it's our intent to continue to do this very thing.
closing that slide then like this. These recent events have, I'm sure, caused a lot of questions about matters like this. For decades, the church has never faced anything quite like this. I mean, there have been local flare-ups of sickness and local flare-ups of challenges in one way or another, at least in our country, but very, very rarely has there ever been anything that would cause a person to have to reflect upon the nature of the assemblies of the church. But now suddenly, we have been thrust back into that point. I pray that we will then give some thought to the discussion of today and the understanding that's attached to those kind of assemblies that we do find approved in the Bible and hold high the banner of those authorities and the characteristic attached to them. And as we do that, it's our intent to be faithful to the Lord in every way. Today, it could be that there's someone in this assembly that would wish to make a confession of error. Whenever that happens, it is never the case that one looks down upon that person that confesses error. In fact, it's an element of of great excitement and joy, for this person wants to be right with God. And today, we'd be honored to pray upon your behalf. As a wayward child of God, you can come back home. You can come back and be reinstated to a position of faithfulness and honor, and your name written right back into the Lamb's Book of Life. If you would wish that to be done today, what better day could there be than this? The fifth Sunday in March 2020, But may I say, if there's someone that has never become a Christian, maybe again you've never had reason to think about the assemblies, and suddenly with all of this going on, it's caused you to think about the church and Jesus and the cross and heaven and the fact that you want to go there. But you know, heaven's a prepared place for those that are prepared to enter, John 14, verses 1 to 3. And if you aren't prepared for it, why not do so today? Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Those are what separated you from the God that loves you. But God doesn't want you to be separated from Him, but He lets you make the choice. Repent of those sins, meaning turn away from them. Make a confession verbally and audibly in the presence of others that you with all your heart believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And at that point, you will be immersed, buried into Christ. Romans 6 verse 3. And as you come forth from that watery grave, you're a new creature. You're not just a person that's now dampened or moist. You are a new creature. Every sin you ever committed is forgiven. No longer held against you. And your name has been put in the book of life. And if you'll live faithfully till death, it'll stay in that book. And on the day of judgment, when He reads the names in that book, you'll be ushered into heaven. And that's what we want. And today, if we could help you in your obedience to the gospel, it would be our joy and desire to do it while together we stand and while we sing.